Good morning, everyone. We're glad to have you here at the Medina East Campus. As we are continuing in a series we've actually been in for the last several weeks now that we've been calling Questioning Jesus. And, uh, and if you guys are a guest here, kind of like Sarah Beth had mentioned, thanks for being here. Or if you, if you missed the past several weeks and, uh, and maybe haven't been with us, let me just kind of summarize kind of what it is that we've been talking about throughout the duration of this series. So what we've been doing is we've really been looking at uh, what we said are really some of the most penetrating questions that Jesus asked. And so each week we've been kind of recapping, and, and here's what we said just as a way of recap. Uh, we said that all throughout the Gospels that Jesus asked a staggering 307 questions. Uh, that when you go through the Gospels, which are kind of like the biographies of the life of Jesus, uh, you see that in Jesus' interactions that he asked an amazing amount of questions. Uh, we said that in comparison to that, that Jesus himself was asked 183 questions. And so we said that, man, when you go through the Bible, what you see is that in most of Jesus' interactions, uh, Jesus was the one who did the questioning. And so we said what's, what also was fascinating was this, that Jesus in those interactions, when people would ask him questions, that he rarely would give a direct answer. Uh, most of the time when Jesus was interacting with people, uh, he would either answer a question with a question. Uh, sometimes he would answer a question with a parable, uh, which oftentimes would end with a question. But all of this, we said, really kind of pointed to the fact that Jesus just really asked a ton of questions. And if you've ever gone through the gospel, you probably have noticed just the staggering amount of questions that Jesus asked. And what we've been saying in this series is we've been saying that the reason that Jesus asked so many questions, most likely, was not because he was seeking out information, he wasn't trying to acquire more information from people. Most likely, the reason Jesus asked so many questions is because he was seeking transformation. Uh, Jesus, as many of you know, being an excellent teacher, an excellent rabbi, understood the value of a great question. Uh, he knows what many of us know, and that is uh, a great penetrating question has the ability to cause a complete mental turnaround. And so because of that, Jesus asked a ton of questions. And so in the series, then, what we're doing... As we said that we want to go to Jesus, not simply for the answers, but we want to come to him first for the questions. And we said we want to allow ourselves to be questioned by Jesus. And the hope is that as we investigate these questions that Jesus asked, that it might lead to greater transformation in our own lives. So that's sort of what we've been looking at together. Each week we've been looking at a different question. And I would encourage you, if you missed the previous conversations, you might want to catch up on that if you would like to. Uh, you can go to our website. You can uh, subscribe to our podcast. You can listen or watch any of the, the previous installments in the series. All of that, of course, is for free, and we'd encourage you to do that. But today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a question that is characteristically different uh, than any question that we've looked at up to this point in the series. So, so up to this point, uh, every question that we have looked at that Jesus has asked has either been directed to his disciples or it's been directed to the crowds that were following Jesus. But like I said, today we're going to find a question that is characteristically different and the reason is because this is a question that Jesus didn't direct to the crowds. This is a question that Jesus didn't direct to his disciples. This is a question that Jesus directed to God. Uh, this is a question, in fact, I believe possibly the only question that we have in the entire New Testament that Jesus addresses to his father. And, and this, this is an um, interesting question. It's a mystifying question. And for some, it's a problematic question. Uh, it's going to introduce us to some of the greatest mysteries that you've maybe we, I, I believe that are in the entire Bible. And the question we're going to find today is found in Matthew chapter 27. And so I'd encourage you, if you have your Bibles, if you'd take them out and if you'd flip with me together just to Matthew chapter 27, that is where we're going to be spending the duration of our time here today. So you can grab your Bibles, you go ahead and flip to Matthew 27. And of course, let me just say, if you did not bring a Bible with you here today, there's no problem whatsoever. We have some Bibles for you. I think they should be in the chairs underneath you or in front of you. And you can turn to page 697 in those black Bibles that we have provided. 
And then let me just also say that if you're a guest with us today and you don't own a Bible, uh, we think it is so important that you have one that we want you to take one of ours. Okay, so you could take it, write your name in it uh, for free, take it home, read it. We want you to do that. We think it's super important you have a Bible. So if you don't have one, you can have one. It's a gift from, uh, from us to you. So Matthew 27. And so as you're flipping to Matthew 27 or as you're uh, opening your Bible app and getting to Matthew chapter 27, let me just kind of set up a little bit of the context and tell you about the situation that we're going to be finding here in Matthew chapter 27. So I don't know a better way to put this, but Matthew 27 is, is um, among, if not the uh, darkest, uh, most horrific chapter in the entire Bible. And I, don't know, I don't know another way to say it, but Matthew 27 is a horrific chapter. And the reason is because in Matthew chapter 27, you see the full account of the trial, of the beating, of, of the crucifixion, and ultimately the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. Uh, that was all laid out for us in Matthew chapter 27, quite possibly the darkest chapter in all of the Bible. And, and like I said, what we're going to find in this, in the midst of this, this horrific scene, is we're going to see Jesus cry out a question. And this is a question, like I said, the only question possibly that Jesus asked God. And this is a question that we find that Jesus asked from the cross. In fact, it's the only question that Jesus asked from the cross. And I thought that it being Holy Week, uh, this week is the week before Easter. Uh, next weekend, obviously, is Good Friday. Uh, Good Friday, you might remember, is where we spend some time remembering together uh, the crucifixion and the death of Jesus Christ, and then Easter, the resurrection of Christ and the victory that came there. And I thought that, man, just being this week, it might be fitting that we just take some time together and to contemplate this question that Jesus asked from the cross. Which, by the way, I also should mention that if you have not yet planned to come to our, our uh, Good Friday services this Friday, I would strongly encourage you to do that. Uh, this Friday, we're going to get a chance to gather together. Uh, it's going to be a sweet time where we can worship together. We can remember uh, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. We're going to take communion together. It's going to be a very, very meaningful time uh, for those of us who follow Jesus to just remember the act of crucifixion. And so I would encourage you to come out to that if, you're, if you uh, haven't planned to do so already. But I thought, man, given that this is Holy Week and good, given that it's Good Friday this Friday, it would only be fitting for us to take some time this Sunday to really press our minds down on uh, this question and what was lying behind it while Jesus was enduring the cross. And so we're going to find this question, like I said, when Christ is on the cross. And so let's just take a look at it together. Start in verse 45. Matthew 27, verse 45. Jesus has already been tried. He has already been beaten. He is now on the cross. And the Bible says this. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all of the land. At about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. And here's the question that Jesus asked from the cross. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani which is Aramaic, and it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so here's the question that we see Jesus cry out from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as I said, this is a difficult question. It's a horrific question. And for some, it's a very problematic question. Here is Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? And of course, the question is, what is Jesus enduring that's causing him to, to ask this question, to cry out this question while he's on the cross. I believe that this question right here introduces us to quite possibly one of the greatest mysteries in all of the Bible. As a matter of fact, it's been said of this very question, this very, very passage, that Martin Luther, uh, if you're not familiar with Martin Luther, he's an early church father, and uh, he was uh, said to be the, the father of the Protestant Reformation. 
And it was said of this passage that Martin Luther, after reading it, was so perplexed by this verse, by this question, that he isolated himself and he locked himself in a room to study and to contemplate and to pray to pray over this very question. He wanted to try to understand it. And uh, it is allegedly said that after he emerged from that room, after several hours of trying to think through what is behind this question, that he said these words, and this is what he is alleged to have said, I give up. I cannot fathom it. How can God be forsaken of God? And Martin Luther, one of the greatest theologians and one of the greatest church fathers of, 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 our time, of all time, Bible, historians tell us he went away, he went into a room in isolation, and he emerged and said, I don't understand it. I can't fathom it. It is a great mystery. How can God be forsaken of God? How can Jesus who claims to be the son of God, who claims to be God himself, be forsaken of God. I don't understand it. And like I said, I believe that this passage introduces to us one of the greatest mysteries. It is a, it is a question that has mystified uh, uh, commentators and theologians throughout the centuries. It is a question uh, that throughout the ages, uh, Christians all alike have been mystified by and have marveled at this very thing. And so listen, here's the thing. Because I know that for several thousand years, this question has been uh, marveled at and has been mystified over. I do not want to pretend for a moment that in the short time that we have here today, that we are going to be able to somehow plumb the depths of the mysteries that lie behind this question. Uh, I believe that this question and what lies behind it is what the Apostle Paul will call later uh, one of the unsearchable mysteries of Christ. And so I don't want to pretend that, that the time that we have, that we're going to be able to fully understand all of the mysteries that lie behind the crucifixion and all of the perplexity that lies behind this question. Now, this is a question that is worth thousands of other questions. I believe we will be spending all eternity uh, trying to figure out and marveling at the magnificence of what God accomplished on the cross. But my hope is in the time that we have together here, in the short time that we have, that just pressing our minds down on this question that maybe we might gain some insight as to what it was that Jesus was experiencing on the cross. And my hope is that as a result of just taking some time to contemplate this together, that maybe for some of us that we might be able to just view some of the magnificence of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. And so because I know that this is a heavy topic, and because I know that this is a weighty and mysterious question, I think it would only be fitting if maybe we started our time before we jumped in and really just ask God to help us, just talk to him. And ask him to help us as we process through this together. So if you would do, do that with me, let's jo join me together in prayer. I think it's a great way to start. So, Well, Father, I just want to say thank you for the cross. And uh, I really genuinely believe it is one of the unsearchable mysteries of Christ. And God, the truth is that there is no human mind that can fully fathom all of the incredible mystery and magnificence of your wonderful plan. And... Uh, God, the Bible says that the cross is foolishness to those who don't understand it, but it's the wisdom of God to accomplish salvation. And so would you just in this time, would you just help us? Would you give us some insight as to why it is that you cried out this question and, and, and some of the weightiness that lies behind it? And so we just ask you, God, that in the next several moments that you would be our teacher. Uh, there, is nothing, there is nothing that we're looking at today that... Um, that a mere human can communicate accurately. And so we ask you that you would meet us here and that your spirit would guide us and teach us. And so, Father, we, we come with a sense of expectancy to hear from you. That's what we, we want to hear from you. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So Jesus on the cross cries out the question, a horrific question, a a mystifying question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for some people, this is a problematic question. And the reason is because at first glance, it almost appears as if in this question, Jesus has lost his faith, right? Here's Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It almost appears that this is Jesus's breaking point, right? And so what is behind this question? What was Jesus enduring that caused him to ask this question? Well, I think in order for us to gain some insight on that, it would help, it'd be helpful if we made a couple observations first. Let me just show you a couple things. First off, I want you to notice in verse 45 what the Bible says. The Bible says this. It says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. Okay, so up to this point, again, Jesus has been tried, he's been convicted, he's been beaten and flogged, and now he's being crucified. And the Bible says that while Jesus is on the cross, that from noon until three in the afternoon, there was a darkness that came over the land. Now, you might have a different translation in front of you uh, than the one we're using right here. And if you do, it might say something like this. It might say, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. And what's that all about? Well, back in Jesus' time, Uh, It was the Jewish custom that they believed that 6 o'clock a.m. was the beginning of the day. And so the way that they would count hours was that 6 o'clock would be the first hour, 7 o'clock would be the second hour, and on and on it would go. So 6 o'clock would be, or the sixth hour would be noon. And uh, the ninth hour would be 3 o'clock. And so basically, what the gospel writer is telling us is that from high noon, when the sun is the highest in the sky, till 3 in the afternoon, the heat of the afternoon... The Bible explains to us that there was darkness that came over the land. Now, there have been some commentators that have speculated that maybe what was happening here was that maybe there was some type of solar eclipse that was taking place. However, I believe the duration of time that elapsed kind of reveals to us that that couldn't have been the case. Uh, Solar eclipses last the very, the, the maximum length is about seven and a half minutes. And so I think that there was probably something a little more supernatural that was happening Uh, on the, uh, during the events in which Jesus was crucified. And so the Bible says that for three hours there was darkness. And by the way, I think it's important to mention this, that when the Bible says darkness, it's not talking about dimness. It's not talking about, yeah, there were some clouds that were covering and there were storm clouds and everything got dark. That's not what the Bible means by that. When it says darkness, it means complete and utter darkness. As a matter of fact, the gospel writer of the gospel of Luke puts it this way in Luke chapter 23. He says, the sun stopped shining. And that is to to signify the level of darkness, the sheer blanket of darkness that happened in this three-hour period of time when Jesus was on the cross. Now, here's the thing. I have never seen a movie. I have never seen a depiction of the cross that accurately represents what happened in these three hours. And probably because that wouldn't make for good film, just black darkness for three hours across the land. Then watch what happens next. The Bible says this. It says at about three in the afternoon, so after being in darkness for three hours, sheer and utter darkness, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemai sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think it's important for us just to clarify real fast that the Bible here says that at three in the afternoon, after three hours of darkness, Jesus, and the Bible says, he cried out in a loud voice. Now, sometimes is the case, when you look at an English translation, uh, every once in a while, you'll come to a passage where the English words don't do justice to the intensity in which the original Greek words uh, that were used communicate and convey the message. And so, so this is one of those instances. And when the Bible says that Jesus cried out in a loud voice, 
uh, the original Greek language, in the original Greek language, the word that's used for loud voice is actually a term that is used only once in the entire New Testament. It is only used once and it is only used here. And the reason it's only used once is to, is to communicate and to signify the intensity of which Jesus cried. The Greek word is actually literally means Jesus cried out in a mega voice. It is the Greek word megaphone, which is where we get megaphone from. And again, what it is, is it signifies the intensity in which Jesus cried out. And so what does that mean? Here's why I say that, because here's the picture. Jesus is in total darkness for three hours, and the Bible says that in the third hour at three o'clock, that Jesus, and here's really the right way to understand it. Jesus screamed. He screamed this question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Crying out in a loud voice does not go far enough to express the intensity of Jesus' reaction in the midst of this situation. The Bible says that he screams in the midst of this. So, So not only is this the only question that Jesus asks from the cross, this is the only question that Jesus screams in agony, that Jesus screams in torment. You see, I think that 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 causes us to ask a really important question, and that's this. What was it that Jesus was experiencing that caused him to scream in agony? What was it that caused him to scream in, in, in the darkness and in the torment, in torture? What was it that caused him to scream this way? See, I think it's an important question, and here's why. Um, if you've ever read through the events of the crucifixion. And my guess is that most of us in this room are probably familiar, or at least vaguely familiar, with the events that surround the crucifixion. If you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ, you probably are somewhat familiar with the events that surround the crucifixion. What you notice if you go through the events of the crucifixion is that the whole experience from the arrest to the trials to the beatings and the floggings and even to the cross itself, Jesus is always so calm he is always so collected. He is always so poised. He is always, always so stoic. And so, for example, when they arrest Jesus, some of you might remember, they come and they arrest him. And the Bible says that, that, uh, that Peter takes out his sword and he cuts off the ear of one of the, the servants that were there. And so Jesus, you guys might remember this, Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. And then he goes over and he heals the dude's ear. And he says to Peter, Peter, if I wanted to, I could call down 10,000 angels right now. We could take care of this. But that's not how we're doing this. And so collected, so calm, so poised through the whole thing. You see Jesus on trial before Pontius Pilate, before Herod, before the crowds, these these angry mobs of crowds that were shouting, crucify him. And what was Jesus's posture? Man, he was unflappable, stoic in the midst of all of this. Even when he was being beaten and mocked, when he was on the cross, The Bible tells us that when Jesus was on the cross, that he had such clarity of mind, that he had such such a focus on the mission, that he had such um, selflessness, that he was able to look out at the crowds, the ones that were criticizing him and beating him and crucifying him. And he was able to look out at them and say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He says this while hanging on the cross. He has the clarity of mind when he's on the cross to turn to the thief next to him. He has the clarity of mission to be able to share with this man the hope of eternal life and lead him to the gospel and ultimately to eternal life. And so all throughout the crucifixion scene, Jesus is stoic and he is poised and he is in control and he is composed. But then all of a sudden, when you get to verse 46 and verse 40, verse 45 and verse 46, it almost appears as if Jesus breaks composure. Composure. 
It almost appears like Jesus is at his breaking point and now he's crying out in anguish and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's problematic because it almost looks like Jesus here is losing his faith. And the question is, what was it that caused him to cry out in agony? Well, here's the thing. There are some people who, who, have, who have said, and maybe you've heard this before, that the reason that Jesus cried out in such agony and the reason that Jesus screamed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is because of the physical pain and torment that he was experiencing on the cross. And I've heard that, and maybe you've heard that too, where people have said, man, just the, the sheer physical suffering that he experienced caused him to scream out in agony. And so, for example, I have heard in, my, in my, the past several years a number of sermons. I have uh, seen a number of documentaries. I have watched a number of uh, presentations where they have went into vivid detail of the physical pain and suffering a person would experience on the cross. And my guess is you probably have seen or heard or watched documentaries or heard sermons that were the same, right? And so, for example, I've heard sermons where they have went into the historical background of, of, of the crucifixion. And they have talked about how the Romans uh, in crucifixion had perfected the art of torture. Uh, I've heard documentaries where they talk about how uh, the Romans had so perfected torture that they figured out a way to maximize the, the experience of human pain while prolonging life as long as humanly possible to maximize the torture a person would go through. I, I've, uh, I've heard sermons where they've went into graphic detail about the placement of where they would put the nails in the hands and where they would put, that, put them in the feet. I've, I've heard documentaries where they talk about the, 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 the medical description of how a person dies when they're crucified, about how ultimately they die not from bleeding out, but they die from asphyxiation, that, that they, they end up suffocating because they run out of energy to lift themselves to take their breath. And I've, I've heard sermons that have talked about that and depicted that, and I've seen presentations and I've seen documentaries, and I've heard people say, man, think about the, the pain that Jesus endured for you. Think about the suffering that he went through for you. And that's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because of the physical agony and the physical pain that he experienced on the cross. Listen, here's the thing. And, and if I could be so bold as to say this, and you got to hear me right on this, because I am not for a moment trying to minimize the physical agony and pain that Jesus endured on the cross. Not for a minute. I, it is unthinkable and it is unimaginable the physical torment that Jesus must have experienced on the cross. But if I could be so bold as to say this, the truth is that Jesus wasn't the only one who endured the pain and suffering of a cross. In fact, historians tell us that in the Roman Empire alone, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, experienced the same physical suffering that Jesus would have experienced on the cross. In fact, uh, Roman history tells us that in one day, there was an offense that was so severe that 2,000 people were crucified on, in that one day, one day. And so what I'm saying, and again, if I could be so bold as to say it, is that the pain and the suffering that Jesus experienced, the physical pain and suffering that Jesus experienced was not exclusive to him. Uh, several other people have experienced the same type of suffering he has. And if I could be so bold as to say this, and again, you have to bear with me because I'm not trying to sound sacrilegious, but there have been many people uh, before and after Jesus who have experienced the same type of torture or similar types of tortures, and they have done so with greater composure than Jesus. And so, for example, the disciples. Uh, some of you guys might know that, that of uh, Jesus' disciples, 
that 10 of them, uh, history tells us that they were tortured and they were martyred for their faith. If you don't know what a martyr is, a martyr is someone who dies for what they believe in. And the Bible tells us that 10 of the disciples experienced martyrdom. Uh, Some of them crucified. In fact, historians tell us that the apostle Peter was crucified. In fact, when he went to be crucified, he said to, to, to those who were persecuting him, he said, I am not fit to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord. And so they had him crucify him upside down. Peter would have experienced the same type of physical torment and pain that Jesus did on the cross. And yet, Peter's reaction, historians tell us, his last words were not, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Peter's last words were words of faith. They were words of courage. Peter said something like this. He said something to the effect of, you can kill my body, but you can't take away my soul. I will never forsake my Lord. Uh, You look at the words of some of the other disciples who were tortured, who were beheaded, or who were stoned to death, and their final words were not, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Their final words were words of courage. They were words of faith. And so I'm saying all of that to say this. What was it that caused Jesus to apparently lose his composure? What was, what was it that was causing Jesus to cry out in agony? And here's, here's what I believe that the Bible teaches us. That the reason that Jesus screamed in agony wasn't because of the physical pain and suffering that he was enduring on the cross. That there was something much more severe happening in that moment than just pain, physical pain and physical suffering that the cross would inflict. I put it this way. I believe that the physical pain and suffering and torture that Jesus experienced through crucifixion paled in comparison to the spiritual torment and agony that Jesus was experiencing here. I believe that that the spiritual agony that Jesus experienced made made the physical pain and agony of the crucifixion look like a paper cut in comparison. And that's not to minimize the pain of the cross. That's just to exemplify the severity of what Jesus was experiencing spiritually. What am I talking about? What am I talking about? Here's what I mean. The Bible explains to us that on the cross, that in this moment, that what Jesus was experiencing was not just the pain of crucifixion, but he was experiencing the full weight, the full measure of God's wrath poured down onto him for the sins of the world. See, because here's the thing. Hundreds of thousands of people have experienced the same type of physical torment and pain that Jesus did on the cross. But there was only one. There was only one. There was only Christ who experienced the full weight of sin and the full wrath of God poured down on him. And I believe that it was this that caused Jesus to cry out in anguish, to scream, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's interesting when you look at the Bible. What does the Bible say, say, say happened on the cross? Well, here's a couple verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The apostle Paul says, this is what happened on the cross. That God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. He was without guilt, without blemish. And God made him who knew no sin, look at this, to become sin. That in some sense, Jesus took on the sins of the world and became, in God's eyes, sin itself. And then the Bible says, so that we might become the righteousness of God. What was happening on the cross? Some mysterious great exchange was taking place. That in that moment, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin. And the wrath of God against sin was poured out on him. And the Bible says that a great exchange took place, that he who knew no sin became sin, that we who are sinners are now the righteousness of God. 
Galatians says something interesting. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Look at this. By becoming the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a pole. And so what is it that caused Jesus to scream out in the midst of the darkness? What was it that caused him to cry out in such agony? Well, it wasn't just the physical pain and suffering he went through. It was much more than that. It was the spiritual agony of having the wrath of God and the sin of the world placed on him. It's because here's what the Bible teaches us. The Bible explains to us that God is infinitely holy and perfect. And holy, by the way, is just a word that means perfect. That Jesus is, that, that God is, is perfect in every way. He's morally perfect. He's characteristically perfect. He is without blemish. And because of that, that, that means that God cannot be near sin. Perfection and imperfection cannot coexist by, just by sheer definition. And so the Bible says that God can't tolerate sin because of his holiness. And so he is perfectly holy and he is perfectly just. But the Bible also tells us this. The Bible tells us that God is also perfectly loving and perfectly merciful, which that might sound nice to say those things. If I said, yeah, God is holy and God is just and God is loving and God is merciful, you might say, yeah, that sounds nice. But if you think about it for a minute, those two things are logically inconsistent. They are logically incompatible. It is an apparent paradox because you cannot be both perfectly just and perfectly merciful. If you, were, if you were perfect in your mercy, it would compromise your justice. And if you were perfect in your justice, it would compromise your mercy. So how can God both be holy and merciful and loving and or, or holy and just and loving and merciful? How can he be both? And in one brilliant display, the Bible says that the holiness and the justice of God and the love and the mercy of God collided. And on the cross, you have the full expression of both. God is holy and he's just. How do you know? Look at the cross. The wrath of God poured on Jesus. God is loving and merciful. How do you know? Look at the cross. It is a profound declaration of both. And you see it in perfect clarity. They come together. They emerge in perfect clarity on the cross. And so the Bible says that the reason that Jesus cried out, one of the reasons is because of what he experienced spiritually. The wrath of God poured on him. And I would even go as far to say this. I believe that in some real sense, And I would even say in a literal sense that what Jesus was experiencing on the cross was hell itself. That what caused Jesus to cry out was that he was experiencing hell itself. Because think about it for a minute. What is hell exactly? This is a good question, especially in our culture. There's a lot of confusion around the topic of hell. In fact, there are many people who don't even believe there is a hell. And the reason is mainly, I think, because in our culture, hell has been so cartoonized and trivialized. And so when we think of hell, a lot of times the pictures that come to our minds, we think of a place and we think of like a place with fire and there's like burning sulfur or something. And there's like a devil and he's got on, you know, a red suit and he's got a pitchfork and they're playing nickelback on an endless repeat cycle, you know, and there's cats everywhere. I don't know. So that's what we (laughs) tend to think of when we think of hell, right? But listen, the Bible explains to us that, that, that heaven and hell, they are not so much locations fixed in time and space. They are outside of time. They are timeless. And so because of that, it's probably better and more fitting for us to think of them as a state of existence. And what is the state of existence of hell? Well, the Bible, every time it talks about hell, it explains a few things. It says this. It says that hell is a God-forsaken place. And literally, it is forsaken by God. That hell is always explained as darkness. Darkness. And it's always explained as torment. 
because the wrath of God is being inflicted against the sins of man. That's what hell is. That is the state of existence of which hell is defined as. It's an infinite state of existence. And I believe that in that moment, what Jesus was experiencing was hell itself. Because think about it. What did he endure? He was forsaken by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness, torment, the wrath of God. And in that moment, Jesus took on hell itself. And I, I think this is why he screamed out in horror. I think this is why he screamed. It wasn't, it wasn't just the physical pain and suffering, which undoubtedly was terrible. But Jesus uniquely took on the sins of the world and experienced hell itself and the wrath of God. I believe that's what's behind this question. And so it's not a bad thing for us to talk about the physical dimension of the pain and suffering of Jesus. But I think to stop there is to minimize the severity of what was truly going on on the cross. There was much more than just a physical crucifixion that was happening. That's part of what lies behind this question. And, but but uh, there's, one other, there's one other thing I want to talk about that's behind this question. I, we could go on, honestly, all day. We could, I believe, like I said, I believe we'll go on for eternity, marveling at the mysteries of what took place on the cross. But there is one more thing I feel like I need to mention. There's one other, one other significant aspect behind this question that I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't mention. And that's this. If you notice when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, if you have your Bible, you might notice that there's probably a footnote attached to that. And the footnote will probably point you to Psalm chapter 22. Now, the reason that that is the case is because the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That question is actually the very first words verbatim. It is a, it is a direct quotation of the very first words of Psalm 22. Now, why is that significant? Well, Psalm 22 is found in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Psalms. It was written about a thousand years before the events of the crucifixion. And the reason it's significant that Jesus cried out Psalm 22, part of understanding that is you have to understand a little bit of Jesus's culture. So back in Jesus's time, um, most of the Jewish men and women that that were in Jesus's culture there, they would have been um, intimately familiar with the Bible intimately familiar with the Bible. And so uh, in Jesus's time, Jewish people, the way they would teach their children how to read and write was they would use the Bible to do that. And so because of that, they lived in a very biblically literate society. It was not much, our society is very different. Most people in our society are biblically illiterate and most people aren't real, real super familiar with the Bible. But back in Jesus's time, everyone would have been real familiar with the Old Testament. And part of that, of course, was the Psalms. Now, another important thing to mention is this, is that uh, back in Jesus's time, the Bible that they had did not have chapters and verses. So if you, open, if you open your Bible now, you'll see there's big numbers and there's little numbers, there's chapters and there's verses. Well, that didn't come till later. Uh, that was a, a way of keeping things organized, keeping track of things, cataloging and teaching. Back in Jesus's time, there was no chapters and verses. And so there was no Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and Psalm 3 and Psalm 22. That's not how they recognized them. So how would they recognize the different Psalms? Well, here's how they would recite the first line of the psalm. And that's how, they, that's how they would title, and that's how they would recognize the psalms. And so to some extent, when Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he screams that out, to some extent what he's doing is he's screaming out Psalm 22. He's saying Psalm 22, to which we're saying, what is Jesus doing? Is he quoting scripture? And I believe it's not that Jesus is quoting scripture. I believe that what Jesus was doing in that moment as he was recognizing that the events of the crucifixion were a fulfillment of the words that were prophesied back in Psalm chapter 22. Because here's the thing, and some of you have done this before. If you ever take Psalm 22 
and you put it right up against Matthew chapter 27 and you look at them side by side, you will realize that it is staggering how many weirdly specific events are prophesied in Psalm 22 that are fulfilled in Matthew chapter 27. And these were a, a thousand years apart from each other. You guys, a thousand years. Think about that for a minute. America is what? 240 years old? About to be 241 years old? That is four times the amount of time there is in America that has elapsed between Psalm 22 and Matthew chapter 27. That would be like the Vikings predicting the iPhone, right? Like, you know, swipe left and you'll be able to access your newsfeed. Like just an odd amount of specificity. And when you look at Psalm 22, there is, it is oddly specific about the events of Matthew chapter 27. Let's give you a couple examples. Matthew, uh, Psalm 22, the psalmist writes this, the very first line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verbatim, what Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, Psalm 22. Well, what's the rest of Psalm 22 say? Well, here's, here's a few things that Psalm 22 says. Verses six and seven, the psalmist writes, but I am a worm, I'm not a man. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Matthew 27, look what the Bible says about Jesus. Those who passed by him hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. Do you notice the similarity of language? Just notice with me. Those who passed by, look at this. They hurled insults. They were shaking their heads at him. If you have a, the ESV translation, it says they were wagging their heads. It's an interesting picture. They were wagging their heads. Look at this. The soldiers and the elders and everyone who saw him mocked him. They were mocking him. Exact same terminology here in Psalm 22 as compared to Matthew 27. It goes on. Psalm 22. The people are mocking this person. He trusts in the Lord, they said. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Matthew 27, they were mocking Jesus. What did they say? He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. Now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. Exact same terminology you see when you compare these two to each other. Probably the most staggering of them all. Psalm 22, verses 16 and 18 says this. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. Here's what the psalmist writes. Look at this. It pierced my hands and my feet. Some scholars point out that this was written before crucifixion was even a thing. Pierce my hands and my feet. They divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garment. Check out Matthew 27. When they had crucified him, piercing his hands and his feet, they divided up his clothes and they cast lots. I'm oddly specific. And this written a thousand years before the events of the crucifixion took place. And so when Jesus is on the cross and he shouts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Part of what he's doing is he's experiencing the full weight of hell. He's experiencing the full weight of God's wrath and the sin of the world. But another aspect of what he was doing was he was shouting out and he was saying, Psalm 22, the events that are taking place right now have been part of the plan all along. That this has been God's plan from the very beginning. In fact, a thousand years prior to this, he prophesied that this would happen. Because what I love about Psalm 22 so much, by the way, is I love that it doesn't simply predict for us in a great amount of specificity the events of the crucifixion. But what I love about Psalm 22 is that it doesn't stop there. See, because if you've ever read the whole Psalm, Psalm 22, you see something really fascinating take place. Psalm 22 begins with agony and it begins with suffering and it begins with the piercing of hands and feet 
and it begins with, with dogs surrounding me and all of these, 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 these words of agony and pain and rejection and abandonment. But when, when you read the rest of Psalm 22, you see that somewhere in the middle of the psalm, it changes. And all of a sudden, all of the pain and the suffering and the agony turn into victory and turn into glory. And, and, and somehow the pain and the suffering and the agony of the beginning of the psalm is something that accomplishes victory. In fact, let me, if you've never read the rest of Psalm 22, let me show you how it ends. It's awesome. At the end of Psalm 22, it says, this is the result. All the ends of the earth will remember and they'll turn to the Lord and the families and the nations will bow down before him. It says this, posterity will serve him and future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. And so when Jesus is on the cross and he says Psalm 22, not only does he understand that it predicts the events of the crucifixion, but he also knows how the psalm ends. He knows what's accomplished through the pain and the agony and the suffering. See, because you see what happens in Psalm 22? All the pain, all the agony, all the torture turns into unbelievable, insurmountable glory and victory in such a way that it says that generations will be told about the Lord. Future generations. People yet unborn are going to be, are going to be declared this news and they're going to shout, he has done it. Now, let me just ask you guys a question real fast. All right? This is, this is kind of wild. All right? Are we not in some way in this room right now a fulfillment of this prophecy, are we not? Future generations will be told. They will proclaim his righteousness and they will declare he has done it. We are future generations, 2,000 years detached from this event. And here we are on the other side of the world in Medina, Ohio, on a Sunday morning, a very beautiful Sunday morning, I might add. And we are sitting in this room together. And what are we talking about? We're talking about the cross, And we're talking about what Jesus has done on the cross. And we are saying, man, it is mystifying and it is mysterious and it is magnificent. And we're marveling at it. And we're saying, man, he's done it. He's done it. I mean, what's going to be happening around the world this week? Think about it, man. Good Friday, Easter service this next Sunday. People all over the world are going to gather together to celebrate and to remember and to marvel at what Jesus accomplished. That he used the suffering and the agony and the pain of the cross to accomplish the most incredible victories through resurrection, and we're going to be spellbound by it. That's going to happen. All of that is a prediction of what's happening in Psalm 22. And so the crucifixion is a, the crucifixion is a direct fulfillment of Psalm 22. And what's happening today is a direct fulfillment of Psalm 22. And what happens in the end, when the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, it is all a picture of what happens in Psalm 22. And so on the cross, Jesus yells out, In a loud voice, he screams the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I believe it is one of the most, one of the most mystifying, one of the most horrific, and yet at the same time, one of the most beautiful questions that we have in all of scripture. And what lies behind it ultimately is the salvation of all humanity, the forgiveness of sins, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become righteousness on his behalf. Ask the band to come up, and, and as they do, I, I want to. We're going to end in sort of a different way today, and it's kind of a different message. You know, it's a, the weight of, of what happened on the cross and the heaviness of it is. It, it is it is something that we we must take seriously, uh, because it's so unbelievably significant. 
And so what we're going to do here in a second is, is the band's actually going to play a song. And uh, this week, Seth, Seth, Seth and I, we knew we were going to be talking about the crucifixion. And he, he, uh, he played this song. And he said, would this be a, kind of a good song for us to debut this weekend? And, he was, and it is such a powerful song. And I think the lyrics are just so powerful. And so what I want to encourage you to do is I would encourage you in a moment just to really reflect as the band plays, reflect and think. Just about, uh, allow the, 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 the weight of what happened on the cross to truly uh, resonate in your heart. See, for some of us, the truth is, honestly, if you've, been a, if you've been a person who's followed Jesus for a long time, when I say, man, Jesus died on the cross and he took on the, the wrath of God for our sins, for some of us, it's nothing more than a cold theological fact. Yeah, I know, I know Jesus died of my sins. I'm like, no, 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 no. This, this can never become old hat to us. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this can never become old hat to us. The, the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they are the cornerstone of our faith. And, and, and I, my, my prayer, my hope is that we never stop marveling at what God has accomplished through those things. And so would you just take the next few moments to interact with God and to talk to him and, and to let the, the full weight of what he accomplished to resonate in your heart. And I would say this too, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're a person investigating Christ, maybe for you today, maybe for the first time, the cross is making sense in a way it's never made sense. Like maybe you always have heard Jesus died on a cross or you've seen people with cross necklaces or you whatever, you know, you go past churches and there's a cross, but you never really understood why. You never really understood the full significance. Why did Jesus even have to die on the cross? Why was there a cross? And maybe for the first time today, it's starting to make sense in a way it's never made sense before. And if that's the case, I would encourage you, man, that today, today you can embrace the gift that God has given you because here's what you need to know about the cross. It was for you. It's for you. And it's for me. And it's for everyone. Everyone can come to the cross and experience the forgiveness of sins. And so if you've never done that before, I would encourage you, even today, just talk to God. And between your heart and God's heart, for the first time, maybe you want to just put a stake in the ground and say, man, God, if you've done this for me, I don't fully understand it. But man, I I believe it and I accept it. And you you can experience that, that freedom today. And so here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. I'm actually going to encourage you right now to stand to your feet. And I'm going to close us in prayer. And the band's going to lead us in this final song. Well, Father in heaven, what you accomplished on the cross is something that is so far beyond the reach of our understanding. And uh, God, these things are too great for us to contemplate as, as, as creatures that you have created. Um, Father, the wisdom that you displayed through the sacrifice of your son Christ is something that I don't, I don't know if we'll ever fully wrap our minds around. And I'm kind of thankful that we can't. But at the same time, I pray that you would just, Lord, allow the, the weight and the gravity of what you accomplished to set in. And so, Father, I pray that, uh, that even in these next few moments, God, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would meet us here, God, and that you would allow, for, for those of us who follow you, I pray that this would, this would create in us um, just a, a, a response of praise and worship that we, would, that we would sing to you and we would shout out to you in thanksgiving, that we would worship you. God, please don't allow the cross, don't allow it to become old hat to us. Don't allow it to be some cold theological fact, Father, please. We don't want to fall into that. And so I pray that in a fresh way, Lord, that you would allow us to engage what you've accomplished. And Father, for the, maybe the person that's investigating you today, I pray that maybe... Lord, you would open the eyes of their heart, allow them to see what you accomplished and 
to embrace the, 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 the full love that you, have, uh, that you have displayed for us on the cross. So God, we say thank you for what you accomplished for us, what we could not do for ourselves. We pray that we'd be transformed as a result of what we've heard today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.